Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where I speak to pharma company owners, healthcare company owners, advisors, industry leaders who have all agreed to share their stories of both personal and professional growth. This week, I'm joined by Dennis Patterson uh, of Veras. Dennis, um, you are both the founder and the CEO at Veras, I believe, but I know that you're also involved in several other businesses. Um, so welcome to the show, first of all. Um, but you know, if you could just give us a very quick intro from your side, um, so that we understand some of the other businesses and, and what the main focus is for yourself. Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been in healthcare for over 50 years. Uh, and so I've seen a lot of changes. And although born and raised in the United States, I've had an international career. I've spent uh, significant times in the United Kingdom I spent significant times in Canada, and I've consulted throughout Europe uh, and Asia, actually. And uh, I really became an entrepreneur very early in my career. I was a hospital administrator by training. I was uh, in a hospital. I started out in Cook County in Chicago, which is pretty well known, and then mm -hmm. was in Canada for 11 years. And then yeah. I became my first company. Uh, and after that, I joined Ernst and, and really learned to be an entrepreneur uh, as a partner with Ernst and started several companies. I've started 11 different companies and I'm now involved with three uh, companies significantly. Uh, one, you've already interviewed the person as our CEO. Yeah. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the first one though was Virus and Virus bought a 35 year old company that had been around uh, using technology to try to help doctors in hospitals do their own best practice mm -hmm. and that was significant and I was very interested in that and I had known the founder for over 25 years when he asked me after I sold my last company to become involved with his company called Iameter yeah and I did and we, we renamed it to Virus mm -hmm. so where, where so where did the the, the name come come from uh, Virus is uh, actually a, a uh, was founded by the founder. It, the original name was Iameter, but he, we changed it to Virus, which he had uh, trademarked mm. because it stands for truth. And what we were trying to do was get at the core truth of clinical care and how it affects patient care. Okay, like it. So that that was really the reason we've used that. And thinking about being on your show, I was trying to think of how like Scott did to explain it simply mm -hmm. of what we do. Uh, and what we're trying to do is very revolutionary uh, on a worldwide basis. We're trying to bring consumerism truly to healthcare, which is very hard to do because unlike Yelp that looks at a plumber and how the delete end, mm. we don't do that in healthcare. You know, we yeah. very much rely on our physicians and very much rely on the people who advise us to do things mm -hmm. but we now have enough technology thanks to what you and i were talking about before we started with our phones with our computers with the internet Crazy, but yeah. that technology clinically is not easily translated to the public mm -hmm. uh, and so what we really have been concentrating on is something called a medical value index which takes new term is that the MVI is, is kind of how right. it was introduced me, to me, right? So the MVI medical value index. And what it is, is out of our uh, working with physicians for over 35 years to embrace their own best practice mm -hmm. uh, for patients inside the hospital, 
we were invited by an insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield of the United States in Montana to create an index that would allow them to reward physicians for changing their behavior and increasing both their quality while at the same time lowering their costs. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have kept this internally to us uh, for the last 10 years since I've been uh, the chairman and uh, CEO of the firm. Yeah. But for the first time ever, we will be releasing this data to the public. Uh, and it'll be released uh, in this summer uh, to the American College of Healthcare uh, trustees mm -hmm. to all to all outlets for people to know what is the overall medical value index of hospitals in their communities and in the nation as a whole. Incredible. Yeah. Um, well, we'll, we'll come in on to, I guess, the MVI, how it works, how it came about, and some of the, I guess, system processes, algorithms that sit behind all of that that you've explained to me previously. Um, but first, let's, you, you mentioned um, in your intro there that you got into entrepreneurship quite early. And I think I was almost shocked at some of the level of responsibility that you took on at such a young age. Um, so one of, one of the, the roles was where you had, you'd gone over to, to Canada um, very early on in your career. Just talk, talk us back, like, talk, talk us back through the early years of, of your sure. career and, and how that came about and how you landed a position where there was a, yeah, a ton of responsibilities on your shoulders for someone at such a young age. So yeah, if you can share, share the age that you were at, at that time as well, just to yeah, give us it, an insight. It was interesting because hospital administration is a new career 50 years ago. It's not now, it's pretty, mm. pretty common, but 50 years ago, it was, it was still quite new. And in Canada, there were no schools of uh, professional hospital administration. Mm. So when I graduated from George Washington University, I went to the Vancouver General Hospital and I became vice president of support services at the age of 23. Which I, yeah, I, I just found crazy. I think I uh, just hung up my sort of uh, sporting days and, you know, I'd uh, been a boxer and traveled around the world doing that. And I was only just heading into the city to get kind of my first proper job, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and then there was you over in Canada at, at that age, taking yeah. on such a, such a huge role. And the thing is, that, you know, when you're young and, and, you, and you remember this yourself, is that you don't think it's different. Mm. You think, well, yes, I went to graduate school and yes, I should have these five departments reporting to me. And yes, I have a multi-million dollar budget. And, but then the, the thing that really strikes you is when you have your first meeting with uh, a senior executive from, for instance, I had uh, the um, food services department, you know, and this gentleman walks into my office and I mm. go, oh my gosh, this guy's the age of my father. And it strikes you then that you have this awesome responsibility because yeah. you're a professional and you've been given this responsibility. And I was smart enough to realize that although I had training in business, I, I would never know as much as that person knew about food services. Mm. So I, I basically adopted a philosophy that was very simple. I told this gentleman and then I told all my other department heads since I met them, I'll never know as much as you do about this department. So therefore... I expect you to make mistakes because that means you're making decisions, but I have to be the first person to know when you make the mistake so that I can help you defend your position. Mm -hmm. And other than that, uh, 
you don't have to call me for any decisions if you've made that decision. You just got to tell me if we have a problem that the physicians will be confronting me with. And it's and that has been my philosophy for all my companies throughout my life. Mm -hmm. So from that position at the Vancouver Journal, I was promoted to the vice president of human resources and promoted to another hospital where I became chief operating officer of an 1100 bed hospital integrated delivery system uh, at the age of 29. Wow. Uh, And then I started my first company when I was 31 Mm -hmm. uh, in Canada to help hospitals that were in financial trouble uh, to work their ways with their board of directors as the acting CEO uh, to do that. And from that, what occurred is Ernst, and it was then known as Ernst Winnie, it's now known as Ernst Young, mm. purchased my, my practice and I moved back to Chicago to do yeah. that. And as I mentioned to you from that, when uh, Lady Thatcher was changing the whole healthcare system, they transferred me to the UK for five years to run that practice. Mm-hmm. And I really got my international experience and started to see how various healthcare systems interacted. And what, what you really become aware of when you get that experience is that healthcare is really all the same in the world. The only difference is the billing system. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, and the, you know, there are doctors, there's nurses, there's people running around the hospital taking care of you. And that's the same in every country. Sure. Uh, and once you figure that out, then you have an easy time relating to everyone in their system. Sure. And how did, I mean, how did you enjoy your time uh, over here in, in the UK and, and what sort of differences and, and nuances did you find between the, the American healthcare system and, and over here? Because it's, it's quite, there is a lot of differences with the NHS oh, and how it works in the US. It's, you know, kind of worlds apart. So how did you adapt um, to that element of it? And, and, you know, the reason they sent me there was because of the Canadian experience, mm-hmm. because Canadian experience is part of the Commonwealth. It adopted the, uh, the UK system early on, and yeah. so it was very similar. And actually, I, as I mentioned to you, is that the, uh, the English were a little uh, resident that they had an American running the system because our system is not very well respected in the United Kingdom or around the world, really, mm. because we spend so much and we have such terrible overall outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and so they used to pretend I was Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way around it, right? one way around it but <laughs> i didn't really find a big uh, a difference once i got past the billing problem i you know and i and i told them look the practice of healthcare is really around people that are professionally trained medically to cure you when you're having an acute episode of illness and mm-hmm. you are in that hospital and once you understood that i was helping introduce to the uk system business practices, because up until then, it was really the government handing money out, and they never knew what the money was really being used for. Mm -hmm. Why was there so many different, why did somebody in Yorkshire demand twice as much money as somebody in the central of London to do the same hospital work? And so that's really what I- When you say somebody, are we talking about um, an individual, uh, a physician, or a hospital as a whole? The hospital as a whole, uh-huh. you know, why were the physicians and the surgeons at St. Thomas spending so much more than the physicians in, in York or any other 
outside providence. And sometimes it was just a wage, but sometimes it was significant. Mm. And, and that's why I became more and more fascinated with clinical variation. And the fact of the matter is every physician really treats patients based on how they were trained. Yep. So their best practice is how they were trained. Mm -hmm. And they don't traditionally borrow much from each other, even if they're in the same hospital. And what Virus's uh, objective has always been is to help them understand that maybe there is a better way of doing it. And maybe it's not the way your professor trained you in medical school, yep. but how do we look at this objectively instead of emotionally? And how do we see that this is a better outcome if we do it a different way? And that's what we really, for 35 years, has devoted uh, the company to. And this is, this is where now, Veras, sort of the current organization for yourself and the MVI come into play, isn't it? It's about right. performance um, and I guess monitoring um, performance between right. hospitals so that it can to an extent be ranked as, as far as I understand. But if you can try and give us a, an overview of, yeah, the, the MVI again and, and what you're you're trying to achieve and then then we'll get into a little bit of, as to, to how it works it's, it sounds pretty incredible um it is and you know and the thing is that we kept it quiet internally because we were just trying to change individual physician behaviors and we did that in over 300 hospitals in the u.s mm -hmm. but there's a lot more than 300 hospitals in the united states and as um and the coronavirus kind of even brought it more to the front mm -hmm. Now hospitals were dealing with a, a just an absolute terrible emergency uh, that tied up the whole system and started to prove weaknesses in all the systems around the country. Right. And as we come out of this, it's done several things that will help what MVI does help people and people who pay for it understand better what's happening clinically. And so basically what what the medical value index does, it measures six clinical factors of mm -hmm. care inside a hospital. Sure. And okay. what, what, what are these six uh, factors that you, you measure? Right. In, in both the United States and in the United Kingdom, everybody has to report to the government how they spent their money for care that mm -hmm. the government pays for. In the United States, only half the care is paid for by the government. And so we have, like the NHS, we have something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It's a federal agency. Mm -hmm. It's responsible for doling out the money to the states, which are responsible for doling out the money to the hospitals for people over the age of 65. Uh -huh. So just like in the United Kingdom, the hospitals here must report to the federal government everything they've done to any person over the age of 65 who has been admitted to their hospital in Medicare. Wow. So what we do is that they then sell that information publicly and we buy that from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So we buy basically the information about everything that has happened to a patient mm -hmm. in our population, which is over 50 million people that are getting- someone, someone walks in with a grazed knee and they get a, a Band-Aid on it, that, information is available to buy for anyone who's walked into one of these hospitals. Right, right. The thing that you can't buy, however, and this is very important to understand, is that you cannot buy the individual doctor and what he did, and you can't get the name of the patient and who it happened to. Mm -hmm. 
So it's collective information in order to protect the privacy of both the physician. Yeah, you've got to have some level of anonymity. Can't say it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it needs to be a bit anonymous. Otherwise, yeah, patient right. records. And we actually have a federal law that demands that. And mm -hmm. you can get fined and you can actually go to jail as a hospital administrator or as a physician or anybody else that has revealed that information to the public. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so it's very it's very sacrosanct here in the United States as it is in the NHS. Definitely, yeah. But from our perspective, we don't really care. What we're looking at is the overall performance of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so buying that information allows us to use algorithms that was founded by our our founder, uh, Dr. Bill Molenbroek, a orthopedic surgeon at Scripps Hospital in San Diego, mm -hmm. who's been researching this information and actually was able to get patents around the algorithms that he created. Uh, and Bill Stowe is a senior advisor with the firm. So you're so, the only guys with access to these algorithms. Correct. Bill is still active in the firm. And I believe, um, He's a senior guy now, isn't he? He's, did you say he's, he's in his 80s, Bill, and still sort of... He won't tell me. His cause? He won't tell me, but I suspect so. <laughs> Since he was a flight surgeon in, in the Vietnam War, I, I suspect so. Oh, well, whatever he's taking, if he's still got that level of energy that he's writing oh, yeah. algorithms and, and everything... Okay. And he's still send, working... Send some of that my way. He's still working <laughs> and he's still advising people. Uh, so basically what the what he did is that he looked at the the thing that's important to understand and the thing that makes healthcare and the use of consumers of healthcare different is that when you have a leak okay and you pull in a plumber because you have a leak of your sink all right mm -hmm. everybody has a leak it might be more disastrous or less disastrous how big the leak is but you all have the same thing in healthcare that's not true you may have an illness, and I'll just use pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So you may have pneumonia, and you're going to the hospital because you have pneumonia. But you may be 17 years old, and you just happen to have caught pneumonia, and that's the only thing you have wrong with you. Or you may be 70 years old, and you have pneumonia, congestive heart failure, diabetes. Mm. And that's much different of how you must be treated by that physician. And so the Makes first sense. thing that Bill discovered was an acuity adjustment methodology mm -hmm. so that he can actually say the 17-year-old is a one and the 70-year-old is a five because of the complications that the doctor has to treat, even though he or she is treating pneumonia. I and that, that adjustment then allows us to look at how long we would expect that patient to be in the hospital. Mm -hmm. people unfortunately should die because people die in a hospital mm -hmm. and how many resources should be used to cure you and so we now compare the ones two three fours and fives in that hospital to the one two three fours and fives and what we've had done traditionally is that we then coached the doctor and said okay here's what you did and here's what your fellow doctors did in the hospital why did you do this Mm -hmm. Well, as a hospital administrator, the first response of a doctor is, well, that's because I'm the best and I get the sickest patients. And we say, no, 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 no. We've already, we've already accounted for that. We're comparing your ones to every other doctor's ones and yeah. your fives to every other doctor's size. So It's apples, should... apples for apples. It's the same. For apples for apples. You know, you're trying right. to create a level playing field. It's not, 
Yeah, you can't you can't do any swindle on, on this one. Do any swindle. Yeah. And what's interesting, physicians love it because you're giving them facts about what they're doing, and they are facts that come right out of their information in their hospital, trended mm -hmm. over three years. And a lot of times, because treatment of a patient isn't a doctor, you know, it's several doctors. Yeah. And a nurse, it's several nurses. So the fact of the matter is a lot of times we'll say, why in five days did you order three MRIs? And they all came back that there was no problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the response is, I didn't order that. Who did? And we can say, well, it was the specialist that you brought in from cardiology who ordered it because he didn't see it on the medical record. So he thought you hadn't ordered it. So mm -hmm. and it's sort of like, oh, okay. And so we can help the doctor understand how they're doing against their fellow doctors. But even more importantly, we can help them create what we call clinical pathways mm -hmm. to actually help them treat patients in a like manner that they did best and that their fellow physicians did best in those hospitals. And I, I was just about to say, so how are you defining a clinical pathway? Look, so I'm, you know, I'm a recruiter, you know, um, for those who aren't necessarily in clinical research, what, how are the, is the clinical pathway right. defined by, by you guys? Is it so the, the true best practice based on your results or? Right. So basically what it is, is twofold. One is the, Overall data information that's acuity adjusted is, is really looked at by what we call Vera Sherlock. That's the name of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. So it looks at all the information and then it looks at all the information acuity adjusted and it looks at all the information by doctor. But because we now have the electronic medical record, we can timestamp what that doctor did throughout his best practice. Mm -hmm. So we can now say to that doctor and to his fellow doctors that what you did on day one was you did a physical, uh, you took blood work and here's the blood work that you ordered. This is the radiology that you ordered. This is the physio intervention that you ordered. And this is what you did day two, day three, day four, day five. And mm -hmm. by the way, it's not just one clinical pathway, it's two clinical pathways. One is for people that are one, twos and threes are not that sick. Mm -hmm. And one is for fours and fives. They are that sick. You can't have one clinical pathway because if you try to do that, what you do is a, the doctor naturally thinks about the sickest patient and he then creates a clinical pathway around that. So now that poor 17-year-old yeah. is getting poked and getting blood drawn and going it's, to three MRIs. Exactly. It's not one size did. fits all. Yeah, it's yeah. It versus the 70-year-old who needed all that. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important to understand. But what we're doing now is that we're creating that, those, that information. So we're looking at the quality measures that are reported to the government. Mm -hmm. We're looking at 30-day readmission rates. So if you think about it, it's sort of like when you have a call recar. So mm -hmm. you got out of the hospital because you had pneumonia, but within 30 days, you were back in the hospital because you weren't properly cured. Yeah. We looked at how many people died. We looked at how many people had complications because they were in the hospital. Mm -hmm. We looked at how, how large that variation was in the way you were treated. And then we looked at how much resources were used to cure you. 
Mm -hmm. So Virus has a very simple definition of quality value care. It is the least use of resources for the shortest period of time to cure you of your illness or to stabilize you if it's a non-curable illness. Mm -hmm. Because so the, 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 the end result, how, how quick with the fewest resources in the cheapest possible way can we reach this result? So it's, it's a win-win scenario for everyone involved. Right, because if you think about it, every time you get poked, every time you get examined, every time you get sent down to radiology, every time a physical therapy person works on you, every mm -hmm. time a nurse comes in and touches you, you can have a problem. You can fall out of bed, you can fall on a stretcher transfer, you can have the wrong poke. And the longer you stay in the hospital, the more that you're exposed to other people with diseases. Mm. And so the shorter period of stay you are in, the better off it is for you, the better off it is for everybody in the hospital. So it's a very simple definition, but it, if it, it's a natural way of thinking about quality value healthcare. And yeah. that's what we're trying to do now is translate that to the public and to those people who pay for it, not only the government, but also for insurance companies. And in the United States, 157 million people in our system is paid for, not by the government and not by insurance, by, mm -hmm. but by self-insured employers. So they're paying insurance companies to do the claims of how much was done to, the, to their employees and their families. Yeah. But they also don't have a measurement. They don't have something that says, well, is this hospital's MVI better for open heart surgery than this hospital? Mm -hmm. This hospital, like we were talking to somebody, they have two major hospitals in Iowa, in a town in Iowa. And everybody goes to the hospital based on where they were born or where their father died. You know, they, but nobody really knows what their quality is by what they do. Mm. We can measure that and we can reveal that. And wow. so, so that's it's not an opinion poll. It's based on facts and figures that technically have been available um, to purchase by anyone. But right. you guys have figured out an algorithm that analyzes this, puts it into a clear cut kind of box, if you like, to say, OK, if you've got disease X, Y, Z, this is the best hospital in your region that you should go to. Right. Um, and also it's accessible for yeah, insurance companies, employers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that everyone can effectively choose where they, they go. Right. We, we've just had a major uh, company that basically supports senior citizens. So mm -hmm. you have to be over age 65 in order to join the organization. Yeah. When we told them what we did, we said, now, they're over 65, so they can go to any hospital in the United States. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you don't have the financial restrictions to say, oh, you know, this hospital is more expensive than that hospital, or my insurance company doesn't cover it. Doesn't yeah. You're covered. And so they're, they are going to use our algorithm to help their members choose the hospitals to go to, either in their community, in their state, or nationally. Wow. And that's, and that's where we see the power of this happening is that as more, and this is gonna cover 2.2 million Americans. So That's we incredible. see the more and more people start to use it, the more and more the hospitals will start to pay attention to what is their medical value index. Mm. And it almost, now, I, I think, 
when you first mentioned this to me, I was just thinking, you know, being a sports fan, you know, the amount of analysis that goes into football, basketball, you name it, you know, you can get stats on players' heights, how they perform, how many shots they're going to land a game, you know, and, and this is, to an extent, it's like that, but in the healthcare world, for, for, for patients. Exactly. It's exactly like that. And there are many people in the United States, like the U.S. News and World Report, that says, here are the best hospitals in the United States. But it's based on the opinion, mm. mostly, or the financial performance, mostly, of the hospitals. Ours is based on the clinical performance of the hospitals. Amazing. Entirely. Mm. So there's a lot of people out here that are saying that we're the best in open hearts and we're the best in this and worse than that because they've advertised that they're our best. No one's mm. ever said, well, compared to what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's the fastest growing, most entrepreneurial, the biggest, the best. And you think, come, as you say, compared to what? what? <laughs> yeah. so this will be the first time that a clinical index will be released to the public to do that. Amazing. Be purchased by, we hope, insurance companies, self-insured employers and others to help them help their families and people that they care for go to the right hospital. Uh, cool. So uh, we're very excited about it. We know that we're going to uh, have a lot of criticism because the hospitals that have been advertising their best are not necessarily going to show up as the best you're, you're exactly you're, you're always going to get some haters with this you know but it's it's kind of it comes down to performance and like for me i'm a huge advocate of creating competition to drive performance right. and yes there may be certain hospitals that might complain but if it's for the good of patients right. it kind of it's and it's improving the industry you know you shouldn't really be complaining well, and the other thing, too, is the fact that they can say, well, we don't like that index. Well, that's fine. Use whatever index you want to. But they can't. The one thing they can't say, and this is really important, James, is that they can't say the information is wrong mm. because they reported it from their hospital to the federal government. Now, if they did that wrong, you could talk to CMS. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk to Rearis about this information <laughs> that we're going to correct the algorithm to re to show what you really did. You have a, you have a big problem with the big payer sitting in Washington, DC. So we're very excited about that. It and sounds, sounds, sounds like you're, you're, you've got yourself to a, a very good position here and you've got kind of a, um, a customer in line and, and a clear foresight of, of where your customer base is going to be. How, I mean, you're, you already mentioned that, you know, the, the impacts of the virus has perhaps, uh, coronavirus has almost brought this to the forefront of people's, you know, minds at the moment. So that's kind of been, I guess, a, a silver lining uh, out of the pandemic yes. to you guys. Um, yes. But, you know, what, what are the general challenges that you have perhaps faced? Um, as you say, look, you know, there may be criticism from, from some hospital. What other um, challenges have you faced or are you, are you envisioning well, I think one of the challenges that we're going to face is that, um, and I don't, want to, I don't want to belittle this, but, you know, if you went to your physician and you said, I had this illness, and he said, you know, James, why don't you just go over the corner and stand on your head for five minutes, and I think it will cure it, you probably would give it a try. <laughs> you may depends, think it depends on what the illness is. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. You, may, you may give it a try. And we have such faith in our physician that he 
or she will direct us to exactly the right place to be. Mm. Then now all of a sudden, it's like coming into Ford Motor Company and going to the dealership and saying, I just looked at um, Consumer Report and you know this Ford Escort is just terrible according mm. to them and you want me to buy it, why do you want me to buy it? So that's gonna be a big change in America mm. and around the world. We've already had interest from Finland about it and I think we're gonna get interest from other publicly funded because it's a double win for them if you think about it. Definitely, yeah, I can, I can see you getting a huge amount of interest from other countries and healthcare yeah. systems because you know, to, to them, if, if the government are funding these things, then it's, it's a no-brainer. Yes, but it is a no-brainer that we tried to introduce to the NHS and they said, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time ago. And that was before you had so much information uh, mm. as we do now. That was in the 90s. So, you know, I can't make that comparison. But it's a, if you think about it, it's a double win. Because now you could say, all right, we've looked at all of the United Kingdom. And St. Bart's seems to have the best outcomes in open heart surgery. Why is that? We're not saying that they're better or worse than anybody else, but maybe they know what they're doing in a certain way. And if we created the clinical pathway mm. that could be adopted by all hospitals in the United Kingdom, we could have a similar result. Mm. And by the fact that they did that with a shorter length of stay and a cure, then we have the ability to perform more of this with the same tax dollars, and maybe we won't have a waiting list. Yeah, well, look, I mean, to me, it sounds sounds incredible, you know, and the way, yeah, it's kind of, at, at the start when you first mentioned this to me, uh, or I think Scott mentioned to, to me, the MVI, I was like, never heard of it, what, what, what is that? And then when you, you know, went on to say, it's at the medical value index and explained that it's a, a ranking systems for hospital it's going to drive performance uh, it all kind of seemed to, to fall into place for me um, yeah. and you know that's what that's why you know I, I like it. it sounds like there's a lot of technology and, and algorithms that go on behind the scenes but I guess yeah. consumers are, are interested in the result yeah and the thing that's really interesting is that if, if we look at the commonwealth countries which is what I always look at for public mm. systems and the people who have adopted those systems that aren't part of the Commonwealth. They use the same, it's called the International Classification of Diseases. Mm -hmm. so it's a worldwide body that classifies diseases that every country uses. So we're using what we call the ICD CM10 code here in the United States which happens to be used the same in the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. and so it's a very easy system to translate to other countries. So it's not like, oh, well, no, we don't, we don't bill for the MRI. So how do we know which MRI is being used? Well, you do know that there was an MRI. So we don't care that you bill for it. It was used under this classification to treat this disease. Yeah. But that's going to make it really, we think it's going to be one of the first adopted international systems uh, around the world sure and is that uh, i guess that's that's the, the goal for you that's the vision um what are the, the next steps in place for yourself then what are the plans for, for uh vrs and yourself as, as you move throughout uh 2021 well the thing is to really get it to become 
not the standard. I mean, you, you know, there's never going to be a standard. Everybody said, well, that's it. You know, they decided the world. And so therefore that's what we're doing, mm. but that, it, that it's robust enough and understood enough that it will be, it's sort of like a lot of people don't know what's behind Google's algorithms to give you any piece of information you ask for mm -hmm. with amazing speed. Yeah. I mean, you take a, I take, when I go out for walks, I'll take pictures of a flower that I don't know. And Google will tell me in 10 seconds what the flower is. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I'm hoping that we will get our technology. We're not that at that point yet, but I'm hoping we'll get our technology to that point that everyone may be able to go on their own handheld and look mm -hmm. at what it is that they need to do. Yeah. Uh, when they are needing an acute hospital intervention. We're not trying to solve the whole healthcare problem. Mm. We, we know that we there are many aspects of healthcare that we don't do, like social determinations, uh, racial determinations, mm -hmm. all those types of things we, we can't look at because of the way the information is currently used. Yeah. And maybe we will get to that, but we don't do population health. But in the United States, Acute intervention is almost 20% of the total healthcare cost. And it's the largest healthcare cost in the United States that happens to an individual. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's important. And I'm sure that that's a true of every statistic around the world in every country. Amazing. Yeah, well, it so sounds, it's um, not my vision, it's Bill's. I mean, Bill is finally seeing his dream come true. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, I guess, incredible. And uh, I, I genuinely hope that, you know, it sounds like you've, you've already got a, a few interested parties, um, yeah. you know, people that have signed up already. I'm sure that there'll be more. Um, so just as a very quick recap for, for those listening in again, so the, the MVI Medical Value Index, um, kind of a, a ranking systems that uh, pits hospitals against each other to improve performance based right. on, you mentioned earlier, it was six, key metrics that you measure just talk us just give us a quick summary of those those six metrics again okay and i'll, and I'll do them in the rank of importance because that's Perfect. right uh quality is the lowest because the hospitals have all learned how to fill out the forms that they send to cms mm -hmm. readmission rates surprisingly are very similar in the united states to all hospitals so it's not a very large measure of that the mvi you start mm -hmm. to get into those when you're starting to compare things that are truly clinically determined by a physician in a hospital. So morbidity, deaths. Mm -hmm. No, I mean morbidity, which is uh, mortality, which is deaths. Mm -hmm. Morbidity, which is complications that occur to you because of something that happened while you were in the hospital. Yeah. How large is that variation and how many resources were used? So the scale goes from zero to 800 on those six factors. And in the United States, and we don't have the current data and the, and the, the, the COVID-19 is gonna really affect that data anyway. Mm. But in the United States, there is no hospital in our system that is in our value one tier of over 701 points. No one is in that tier. Wow. And yeah, or in tier two. Gives, I mean, it, it gives you a good insight as to, to how these things can be can be ranked. Uh, you know, I find it pretty incredible. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people out there, hospitals, should I say, rather than people that will perhaps want to be that, you know, that first one to, to, be, to, to reach that top tier. Um, yeah. So, look, that's 
you know, a fantastic um, sort of vision that, that Bill's got and, and that you guys are now pushing towards. Um, you know, hopefully as we get back to normality, we'll, you know, you'll be able to get out to various other business meetings, speak to investors and, and things like this to, to really push that on. Uh, but look, aside from, from, I guess, the world of, of business, you know, as, as we press on into um, 2021, uh, lockdowns are starting to get lift, lifted. Uh, I'm ever hopeful that I'll get a, a haircut at some point. Uh, <laughs> what, what is it um, that you're looking forward to, to getting um, getting out and, uh, and up to once, um, I guess, the restrictions are, are, are all lifted at your side? Yeah, you know, it's um, Zoom is great. Uh, telemedicine is great, and that's very helpful to many of my businesses. But the fact of the matter is to create a culture inside any organization is the water cooler, is the people having indirect conversations about their business. Mm -hmm. and that's gone with Zoom. I mean, we talk specifically about what we have on the agenda. And the fact of the matter is, I think that it, that it is stifling um, innovation because somebody didn't all said, that was an interesting thing that James said to me yesterday when we were talking about if we did this one thing differently in recruiting, it would have a drastic effect on our outcome. Mm. Why didn't we look into that? Well, you know, where is James? Well, he, he's down the hall. Let's go talk to him. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to that interaction. And also, um, Although we can release the international index and we can release the index in the United States publicly, mm. it would be very difficult for a hospital to use our technology without somebody being on site coaching the physicians of how to look at the data as it comes out of our algorithm mm -hmm. in order to change. My, my doctorate is in, psych, in organizational psychology. Yeah. And so I, I studied how organizations change based on the psychology of that organization. And that's what we are now missing in terms of innovation. We don't have that collective psychology. And many of the companies that have prospered during this time was because they had already such a strong culture that it didn't matter that everybody worked at home. Everybody knew the basic mission of the company. Everybody knew basically yeah. when the boss is going to react positive or negative to something mm -hmm. and we've lost that uh, and I think we've lost a lot of focus and no matter how much you you may uh, try to do this is that if you have to do the laundry you might just run out and put something in the dryer right now after we get done this phone call mm. you won't do that if you're at the office you know I gotta go home and change my laundry but I think that's not going to cut so I'm, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that I'm also looking forward to the fact that there's so much innovation that has occurred from the COVID-19, like mm, telemedicine. Definitely. That we haven't even started to scratch the surface of how significant that, that could be uh, on a, both a national basis, but also internationally for medicine. Definitely. Well, look, Dennis, it's been a, a very interesting story from, yeah, I guess landing kind of a, a very high profile job at the age of 23, you know, mm -hmm international travel coming over uh, to the UK landing big deals coming up with algorithms that do that unthinkable um you know fantastic having you on the show to, to share your story um you know in terms of 
for those listening in. Um, if anyone needs to, to reach out to yourself, or, you know, whether it's investors or people interested in, in the index to, to hear more, um, what's what's the best way to get hold of you? Is it is it LinkedIn or your Probably website? Just use my email address. So it's Perfect. my initials. So it's for like my initials are, uh, um, my name's Dennis Joseph Patterson. So it's initials DJP mm -hmm. at Virus. Victor Edward Robert Robert Apple Sam.com or go to our website, virus.com. I'll make sure that we get that onto um yeah the podcast links and, and things so that people can reach out uh, with any questions. But look, Dennis, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, and we will definitely keep in touch. I'm I'm interested to hear how it goes with the MVI over, over the course of the next couple of years, I guess. Okay, well, maybe you can get me back so I can go over to my old club at the East India Company. Definitely, it would be good to, to get you over for a beer. All right, sounds good. All right, cheers, Dennis. Mm -hmm.